All right. Well, we're going to get in the Word uh, now for a few minutes. So uh, if you have your uh, Bible, you can go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Uh, sorry, we're having some projection problems on that screen, uh, but we turned on the, the big boy for you guys on this side of the room. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9. Last week we uh, looked at chapter 8, the whole thing in, at one time. And um, I tried to show how chapter 8, if it, Hebrews is a long book. And when you, take a, when you take a whole school year to look through it, sometimes you can lose track of, well, it's just another passage, it's just another passage. You can kind of lose where you are in the whole flow of things. I'm, I keep trying to remind you where we are. And chapter 8 was kind of a transitional chapter in Hebrews. It was, it was um, a hinge. Think of it like a hinge between um, all the talk in chapters 5 through 7 about uh, Jesus being a greater high priest, not like the Levitical priest, but a greater, more eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's chapters 5 through 7. And then chapter 8 is like this hinge from that to chapters 9 and 10 where it's going to say, now that we've got this high priest, how does he, he's a greater high priest, how else is he greater chapters 9 and 10 are he does his work in a greater temple and his sacrifice is greater chapter 9 is the temple chapter 10 is the sacrifice and uh and you can see chapter 8 is like the hinge from the priesthood to the temple and sacrifice and you get flavors of all those chapters in chapter 8 um but no so today we come to chapter 9 and the the hinge has swung and now we're on a little greater focus on the fact that Jesus, our great high priest, is now going to describe more fully that he did his priestly work for us and for our salvation in a greater temple. Um, but it's a fascinating chapter, and it packs a whole lot into a small amount of space. And what we're going to find the author doing in, in Hebrews 9 is obviously, like we've said week after week after week, it's trying to encourage those believers that were tempted to leave Christ and walk away, go back to Judaism. He's trying to encourage them to, to persevere in Christ. Don't walk away from Christ. Don't go back to the Old Covenant and, and, and Judaism. But what we're going to see this morning, we've seen it some, but we see it especially this morning, is he's, he's encouraging them to persevere in a very particular way. Um, because understand, understand their, their temptation. They're not just wicked people like wanting to just shun Christ. They're not just wicked people wanting to say, I don't want anything else to do with this, and they're going to walk away into nothing. Understand what their temptation is. Their temptation was to go back, yes, to what was familiar. They grew up in Judaism. That's, their, that's just in their bones. They, Yeah, they wanted to uh, go back to what brought them less hardship. It was hard enough being a Jew. It's even harder being a Christian in first century Roman Empire, but here's, here's the particular way that I want to highlight this morning. Their temptation wasn't just to go back to what was familiar and more comfortable, but it was to go back to, to that which they were also confident that God had also ordained. They wanted to go back to what they, they were also confident that the Scriptures proved that this was God's doing. I want to go back to, what I'm trying to say is, 
when they were tempted to go away, don't think that in their minds they were wanting to go back to something unbiblical. You get that? They, were want, they thought they were going to leave Christ, but they were still going back to something that was very biblical. Okay? And um, so for, it's for that reason. Because they were going to something they said, the Old Testament clearly, well, that was, that was the whole Bible at that time. The Bible clearly teaches this. That's why the author of Hebrews in this book, to, to encourage them to persevere in Christ, he doesn't just warn them against walking away. Because he does do that. But he takes a ton of time carefully showing from the Old Testament itself. Like he makes careful arguments from the Old Testament scriptures to say, hey, you want to go back to Judaism because you think it's biblical? Let me go to the Bible and show you how it, it itself is pointing forward to something greater. If you, if, you saw, if you really saw what was there, you would say, oh, as soon as I get back to Judaism, it's going to be pointing me back to Jesus. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying that the Old Covenant, oh, the Old Testament was always pointing forward to something that would replace the Old Covenant, that would replace this old system of Judaism that would be something more permanent, something more perfect. It's also why Hebrews is a hard one to study sometimes and hard one to understand because, I mean, the warnings are hard enough to understand, but um, also because it digs deeply into the Old Testament. And if, if you're not all that familiar with the Old Testament, um, you can easily get lost in what he's saying or not even catch the significance of what he's saying. I mean, if you're not thoroughly familiar, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of Hebrews. I mean, it, it forces you to go back to the Old Testament because if you're not familiar at all with the Old Testament, then coming to the book of Hebrews, it's kind of like, and I don't mean this offensive anyway, it's just the, the analogy that comes to my mind, it's like taking a toddler to this great museum. And he's there and he's seeing it, but, but the toddler has no idea what he's looking at. He has no idea the significance of what it is he's seeing. You know? And, uh, and, and, and so, uh, that's why today, <laughs> I had originally planned to look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, um, where... The author is mentioning one thing after another in the Old Testament in an effort to show that as glorious as that was, it doesn't compare to the glory of Christ. I was going to look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, but as I started putting all of it together, there was just too much to pass over so quickly. Like, um, so we're only going to look at the first five verses, like verses 1 through 5. I was making notes and making notes and making notes and... I realized I was at verse 5, and I was like, if I go to 14, we're just going to stay here for the whole two hours, and that's not, brother, I would not appreciate that. Um, all right, even though we're going to look at the first five verses, where I was originally going to look at the first 14, the point is still the same. He's going to talk about uh, the glory of the Old Covenant. And he's doing that because that's part of his way of arguing. His way of arguing to, to persuade them to stay with Christ and persevere in Him, his way to do that is not to just downplay the Old Covenant. 
It's not to say it's worthless in every way. It's not to say, how could you even think about going back to that? It's worthless. It's not good for anything. He's not saying that kind of thing. No, what he does in his way of arguing, their temptation to go back to what they knew, what they thought was biblical, stay with Christ, his way of arguing, is, we're going to see in this is, look, I know. I know the old covenant was glorious. I I know that God is the one who brought it about. I know that He worked wonders in it. And I know that it was glorious in so many ways. I get it. He wants to pump that one up big because that's going to prove His point even more. As glorious as that was, there's an even greater glory in Christ. And uh, it surpasses even that covenant that came with breathtaking glory. So he doesn't make them feel stupid for the temptation, but he understands how glorious it was. And by the way, that may be a cue for us when we're talking to people who are tempted in some way. We see they're caught in something. Don't say, you stupid idiot. How could you be tempted by that? You know, look for some way to go, you know, I, I get it. I'm broken too, you know. I get it, but Jesus is better. Well, before we go any further, let's read the passage. Hebrews 9, we're actually, just to make myself feel better, we're going to read verses 1 through 14, <clears throat> but then we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5. All right, Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent or a tabernacle was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. That would be both inside and out, by the way. In which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, the high priest only goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. Oh, that's an interesting phrase, is it not? We don't just sin intentionally, we sin unintentionally. Praise be for the cross. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, that's, you see his argument? As glorious as that was, it was not as glorious as the good things that have come. The good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, see, as glorious as that was, there's something greater and more perfect. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That would have been a great passage to study all in one time. But nevertheless, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. Let's pray again. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, uh, and perfect word. And uh, it's our desire that we would um, come under submission to it because it's not just coming under submission to a book or to human wisdom, but uh, your very word given to us in these pages through human authors. And um, Father, bend our hearts toward it if we... uh, if there's resistance to it in, in our hearts and help us to understand the truth that's here. Help us to embrace it and love it and help us to obey whatever it leads us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach and give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a lot here. Hopefully you saw as I read, I tried to point out a couple of t- places where, uh, like I mentioned, ha- having already shown that Jesus is a greater high priest because he's an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek, Better than the Levites, he's now still showing that Jesus accomplished his priestly work for us in a greater temple than the Levitical priests could in Jerusalem. But looking more closely at verses 1 through 5, I think he's describing the glory of the old tabernacle, the glory of the old tabernacle and then later the temple. And this is why we read the whole thing. You'll see that this is, he's setting up his main argument. He's setting it up as if he, he really wants them to understand that he really understands the, the, uh, their temptation to go back because it was a glorious thing. Um, the old temple and all that went with it really was glorious and really was from God. Before he begins in earnest, uh, his comparison, see how Jesus is better, that kind of thing, he, he, he describes uh, this old tabernacle. And I, what I wanted to do, I want us to try and feel the full effect of the argument that he's making here. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and that's why I just want us to focus on verses 1 through 5. I want us to feel the weight he, of the argument he's making because it, it's, a, it's a really good argument. Uh, so let's dive in and, and let's just think about the, the, the glory of the old tabernacle and the temple, uh, verses 1 through 5. So here's what we have in these opening verses. In verses 1 through 5, he simply describes the contents of the Old Covenant tabernacle and later temple um, to show how glorious it was. Like we've been saying, not not for its own sake. Wow, that ark had gold inside and out. Wow, look at that ark. It was not for its own sake, but it was all these contents that we see in verses 1 through 5 they, they were glorious, not for their own sake, but, but, but for how they revealed God's glory. I mean, there were God's... It's not as if Moses was, uh, had a hidden gift as an interior decorator. And, and it was like, okay, I think a lampstand would look good over here. And, and like, you know, a curtain would look really good over there. Uh, it's that, so these, no, these were here on God's instructions, given to reveal God's glory. Um. And, and the more we see God's glory in these things, that you might be like the toddler in the museum and just blazing right through it, not really 
seeing what you're seeing, the more we see it, the more we'll feel the weight of what he's going to say in the rest of the chapter, which I hope we'll get to next week, Lord willing. Look at how he opens in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. An earthly place of holiness. So he's about to describe the different parts, different aspects of that earthly place of holiness. That earthly tabernacle, temple, under the law of Moses. And as he begins to describe all these different things uh, that are associated with the, you know, these regulations for worship, don't forget what he said. I'm just reiterate, reiterate my point so that you don't think it's just my word. Reiterate what he said in, back in chapter 8, specifically verse 5. He says in chapter 8, verse 5, the, these things, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain, and he's quoting Exodus 25, verse 40. And that's where, just like I was talking about, God told Moses, here's how I want you to build this place. Here's what was to go in it. Here's where it was to go. And it's also the same chapter, by the way, Exodus 25, where most of these other things that you're going to read about are talked about, either Exodus 25 or the chapters right following. But here, the point is this. If the Old Covenant tabernacle and later temple, if, if they were made according to the pattern that God himself gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, then it was filled with the very glory of God himself. And, and, and he, God is the one who designed it, and he met with his people there. So it was a glorious thing. So verse 2, he mentions things that were, he talks about the sections of this covenant. In verse 2, he mentions things that were part of the holy place, the first section. <coughs> and he mentions the lampstand, and the table uh, with the bread of presence on it. You say, what in the world is glorious about a lampstand and a table with bread on it? Um, well, on the surface, it may not seem like much, but why was it there? I mean, what, why did God command that it be there in the pattern that he gave to Moses? Well, if you read Exodus 25, you would know that that table is overlaid with gold, or gold place, uh, and, and particularly, instructions were given on how to carry it. You don't just pick up the table and walk with it. Right? How, do you, how do you carry it? We'll see this again when we come to the Ark of the Covenant. That's an important deal. Well, why were there particular instructions about how to carry this table with the bread on it? Because God's presence was there in it. God's presence was there. And what was the bread called? The bread of the presence. Whose presence? God's presence. That's why anybody, was, not just anybody, was to eat it. And it symbolized the presence of God there. And interesting, the lampstand, the light, the bread of the presence, both of those things pointing forward to Jesus, who said, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life. You know? So the, the glory is there in this, insofar as God's presence is there. Both of those things are pointing forward to Jesus. We've been talking about that in CBS, by the way. Plug on Wednesday nights here in this room. You know where to go. 8 o'clock, Wednesday nights. We've been talking about the great I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. So that's the holy place. Outer temple. I mean, outer, outer territory. 
But then in verses 3 and 4, he, he mentions another section of the tabernacle and later temple called the most holy place. And it had a curtain for separating it from the rest of the tabernacle. And, 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 and only, it, we saw it later in the, in the part that we're not going to look at today, uh, that only the high priest could go in that part, part and only once a year. But he mentioned several things that were inside that most holy place. And, he, and, 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 uh, and for example, um, the golden altar of incense, or there's a debate on was it inside or was it outside. It was outside, but there's the golden altar of incense, God's presence, uh, the, the, the smoke rising was symbolizing God's presence there. But inside, inside this most holy place, were several things, three things in particular. It says, the golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. I mean, that may sound <laughs> weird. If you, don't, if you don't know these stories, a staff that budded, what? But if you do, if you get the story behind these things, you see that the glory of God is obvious in them. Like, let's just take each of those one by one. Like, in that ark was a golden urn holding manna. Manna. The manna that God sent from heaven daily for 40 years. For 40 years to feed the people. Like, one continuous miracle for 40 years. And there's a golden urn holding some of that manna. A clear sign of God's glory and presence in the provision He provided for His people. They're right there in the ark. But we know about the manna. But Aaron's staff that budded. Really? Like, do you know that story? Okay, let's, let's get it. That's from Numbers 17. Numbers chapter 17. And, uh, and to, get, to, get, to get that, you've got to know number 16. Okay, So to, I, we're not going to have time to read it all. You can turn there. You can fact check me. But just, I'm going to summarize. Numbers chapter 16 is known as Korah's Rebellion. Korah's Rebellion. What is that? Well, a Levite, that is one of the priests, a Levite named Korah, K-O-R-A-H. He and three other guys named Dathan, Abiram, and On. <laughs> they were from another tribe, but they gathered about 250 other Levites to rebel against Moses and against the law. They didn't like the law of Moses. They didn't, they didn't like the, the, the division of the duties that God commanded in the law. And Korah even said in Numbers 16.3 to Moses, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy. What? I mean, if, what a lie. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And they didn't believe. So they didn't believe that, that God had chosen Moses to lead the people. They resented Moses. They, 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 and they put God to the test. So Moses basically said, okay, we'll let God sort this thing out. 
So what they did, they, they all, he said, all of you come back to the tabernacle in the morning. So they all came to the tabernacle that next morning and God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, get out of the way. <laughs> uh, and so Moses got out of the way. And what did God do? Well, for Korah and his few buddies, uh, well, by the way, he said, get out of the way. And Moses basically said, why? He says, that I may consume them in a moment. How's he going to consume them in a moment? For Korah and his three buddies, the earth opened up and swallowed them. People have nightmares still today about like a sinkhole. Like there are people who have a, a straight phobia of laying in their bed. I'm sorry if I create one for you now. <laughs> that they're gonna they're gonna go to bed. They're gonna lay in their bed and go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, a sinkhole is gonna swallow them up. Well, that's kind of what happened to these people. Earth swallowed them up. But then they had they had already gathered 250 other people, and it says for those people, fire came from heaven and consumed them. They were 250 of the priests. And lest you think it was over at that point. No way. The next day, after the earth had swallowed up people and fire had come from heaven, the rest of the people, remember what Korah said, we're all holy. No, you're not. The, the people of, the, of Israel had the audacity to go to Moses the next day and complain, you killed God's people. That was a sin in one of two ways. Like either they were sinning. When they said, you killed God's people, Moses, either they wrongly thought that Moses somehow had the power to make the earth open up and swallow people and make fire fall from heaven, which was a sin to think that. Or secondly, they reduced God. They reduced God and his glory in their minds so as to think Moses could manipulate God to do whatever he wanted him to do. Either way, their complaining was a sin against God. And again, what did God say? Moses, get out of the way. And this time, instead of the earth opening it up and fire coming down from heaven, this time it says a plague had already started. A plague had already started on the people. This... this this is a, a, a just know your Old Testament. It's so it's amazing. How did God bring His people out of Egypt by sending plagues on the Egyptians, and now His people are in the wilderness, acting like the Egyptians? And what does He do? He sends a plague on them. And by the time, and it was breaking out so fast that Moses realized what was happening. He goes, he and Aaron go in and into the tabernacle and plead for the people, and God relents. But by that time, nearly fifteen thousand of them had died. And so to put the whole thing to rest, that's all number 16. That's one chapter. Put, to put the whole thing to rest, Moses said, okay, I'm, I'm tired of seeing people die. Here's what I want to do. All 12 tribes, I need the head of all 12 tribes. You bring your staff. Write your, we're going to write your name on it. We're going to write everybody's name on it. Everybody's staff, bring it. We're going to lay it in the, tent, in the tabernacle. And God said that he would prove which person and which tribe he was choosing to be his priest by making 
that particular staff sprout. <laughs> and so in the morning, they go into the tabernacle, and it says of Aaron's staff, the only one out of all of them, number 17, 8, it had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. His staff. What? This was God proving his choice of Aaron and his choice of Aaron's descendants as the only ones who could serve as priests for all the people in the Old Covenant. And the law was clear. You only come to God as God says come. But that staff was in the ark. You could just blaze right on by that in Romans, I mean, in Hebrews 9, 3, we go, oh, and Aaron's staff that budded. Oh. No. The earth swallowed people, fire from heaven, plagues. I mean, it's all there. Whole Old Testament one, in one uh, chapter. But that staff was in there. As well as, we've got manna. Manna is in there. Aaron's staff that budded. And it says the, the tablet, the very tablets of the Ten Commandments. This would be the replacement tablets, right? That God, I mean, Moses broke the first one. They were in the ark. These were the, these were the replacement tablets uh, that God himself, with his own finger, wrote these laws. All of this was in the ark. And do you remember how, let's, let's just talk about the ark for a second. We've said what was in that ark. Manna, staff, tablets, all inside this very golden ark. Let's talk about the ark. You remember how I mentioned that, that that table of the bread of the presence had a certain way of carrying it? Um, well, so did the ark. So let's think about <coughs> this ark. The ark had rings on it down the side. Why? Because it also had long poles, that two long poles that they were to run through those rings and that the priests could carry it like this on their shoulders, one on the front, one on the back, and there were long poles so that as they held it, they still weren't anywhere close to the ark. And they were, you know, to walk like this. Um, that's how you were to carry it. Because that, that ark, like the table, represented God's presence with His people, His covenant presence, and nobody was ever to touch it. Carrying it that way would ensure that nobody ever would touch it. If only they would do it that way. There's a story from 1 Samuel chapter 5 that the Philistines in battle against the Israelites, the Philistines won and they captured the ark. They captured it. They stole the ark. And they put it, where are we going to put it? Let's put it in the, in the, in the temple of our God, little g, Dagon. And uh, in the morning when they went back in there, they realized Dagon's statue had fallen over on his face. Okay. So what they did, they, they, they set him up again, which is an odd thing to do for a god, if you really is a god. So let me help you back up. Um, but they went in there the next morning, and poor Dagon was over again, except for this time not only was over, but his head and his hands had been chopped off. Well, this was more than a little embarrassing to them. 
And so in, we can't keep mutilating our God. So um, they, the Philistines just said, we got to get it out of this room. They start sending it around to different Philistine homes. And everywhere it went, the people would break out in uh, tumors and uh, plagues. And eventually, I'm, 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 I'm passing over history quickly, eventually they said, we don't want it anymore. Like, we don't want it anymore. So um, fast forward a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and David is now king in Israel. And he defeats the, the Philistines, and he goes to get the ark back, which they don't want anymore. But even when David and the Israelites, when they go to get the ark, they didn't carry it like they were supposed to with the poles and stuff. So the Philistines apparently had put it on a cart, <clears throat> and so they said, well, let's just take it on the cart. Roll it back to Jerusalem. Well, roads were bumpy then, and um, the, the cart hit a bump. The oxen stumbled, and the ark started to fall off the cart onto the ground. And one of the guys, poor guy named Uzzah, thought to himself, I don't want the ark to fall in the mud. So he reached out his hand to catch it. And when he did, the moment he touched it, he died. This is how we read it in 2 Samuel 6, 7. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. You go, well, that's kind of... He was just trying to help. What was his error? <clears throat> Here's how R.C. Sproul, now with the Lord, one of my favorite writers, he... Here's how he described Uzzah's error. R.C. Sproul said, Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark, but mud is just dirt and water obeying God. Mud is not evil. God's law is not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of a human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than dirt. They were not. Goodness. God is holy and His glory is, is sobering it, 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 and, it, and it's fully on display even in the Old Covenant. Like, because God didn't change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. No, God didn't change from the Old to the New. Moving from the Old from the New was, was simply His promises moving from promise to fulfillment. And the story continues, by the way, Us is laying there dead. David is saying, what do we do? Well, he didn't know if they should continue taking it back to Jerusalem. So he left it. He left, David left the ark for three months at the house of an Israelite named Obed-Edom. That's a cool name, right? Obed-Edom. Whereas with the Philistines, tumors and plagues broke out in their houses. God just lavishly blessed Obed-Edom. And Obed, Obed is loving life, man. He's like, you know, uh, well, Obed's sitting there getting blessed, and David catches wind of this. And he said, well, maybe he's not mad, God's not mad after all. So he thought he'd give it another try. And this time, he says, when I go back, we're going to carry it the right way. 
get the poles and they and they they start to carry it the right way. And if you're reading in Second Samuel six, it says they went six steps. It counted, you know. And then you can imagine David. All right, all right, guys. He's like one. Everybody still alive? You know, two. You know, six steps. And after one. Two. After they got to six, David just couldn't take it anymore. And, and it says after six steps, he stopped everything and they sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And not only that, but when they, they offered sacrifice to the Lord, 2 Samuel 6.14 says that David, um, whoop, I'm not even there. There it is. David danced before the Lord with all his might. Getting it. He was just so overwhelmed with the, the glory and the majesty of God. He had seen people die right in front of him just for touching it. Like, the, the majesty of God manifested in this ark of the covenant presence. This is the same ark that was in the most holy place of the old covenant tabernacle with a golden urn with manna in it, with Aaron's staff that budded, tablets of the Ten Commandments. Not only that, that's what was in the ark. What was on it? Well, Hebrews 9, 5, if you're still there, says, Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So this, this was the, the, the chair on the top were the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. This was the part of the ark that was sprinkled Every day of atonement with the blood of the sacrifice for the people. This was the clearest expression visible to the people of the manifest presence of God. Traditionally, by the way, they learned from Uzzah. Traditionally, when the, when the high priest would go in there once a year to sprinkle the blood, traditionally they would tie a rope or a chain around his ankle just in case he went in there and died nobody would have to go in after him they could just pull him out but you see how it says on top there were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat cherubim appear a lot in the bible but the first time cherubim appear are they're the ones that god put at the entrance of the garden of eden when he kicked adam and eve out for their sin to guard the presence of the Lord. And those cherubim point, they're, they're glorious in and of themselves. They're the cherubim of glory. Well, they are glorious, but they're pointing to a greater glory. And, uh, and they're there by that mercy seat. And they, they realize that this is a holy place, but God has provided a way through these sacrifices. Like, to wrap this whole thing up, like it's no wonder it's no wonder that some of these new Christians were tempted to go back to Judaism. Like, these, are, these things were still in front of them every day. Like, these symbols of that glorious covenant were still right in front of their face every day if they're in Jerusalem. And they knew that God had given that system. And they knew... Uh, that God had manifested Himself in these things, that He had worked wonders for centuries. 
That is exactly, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews wants you to think and wants you to realize and, and, and know that he understands perfectly because his point is going to be, as we'll see next week, how much greater is the glory of Jesus who served as a greater high priest in the even greater temple that all of these things, as glorious as they were, were just copies and shadows of 